0: AT&T Threat Track is a roundtable discussion of the latest network security trends and news conducted by AT&T data security analysts. Complete video of this show is available at techchannel.att.com.
1: Hello, welcome to at Threat Track for December 15th, 2015. This program provides network security highlights, discussion, and countermeasures for cyber threats. Today we have a special guest, uh, John Matherly. Uh, John, you're the creator of Shodan, and uh, I think there are perhaps folks in the audience that are not familiar with what Shodan is. So tell us a little bit about yourself and uh, what, what Shodan is about.
0: Hi, yes. So my name is John, and Shodan is a search engine For everything that's connected to the internet, so I like to compare it that with Google, you can find websites. With Shodan, you can find devices. You know, for example, you want to find all the Cisco routers in Germany, or you want to find all the anonymous FTPs, or you want to find you know all the GE Wink hubs in North America. You can do that with Shodan. I think that's it in a nutshell. (laughs) Yeah, it sure is in a nutshell. So uh,
1: I'm kind of curious, what motivated you to put this together?
0: So it didn't start off as a security project, even though it's known for that now. It started off with the idea that I want to provide empirical market research to mm-hmm. companies. I initially designed as a tool for companies like Microsoft or Cisco to figure out who is using a product, how is it deployed, how are the competitors using, you know, their, where are they located? You know, the idea was, oh, maybe Cisco could find out where are. Their uh, their old switches located. Maybe they can contact the customers and be like, hey, do you want to upgrade? Mm-hmm. Or where is Dooner located? You know, same thing for Microsoft. Which data centers are using IIS? Which version are they using? I thought that information would be very useful to businesses, and they could use it for their sales marketing pipeline. Obviously, that's not how it turned out at all. <laughs> but that's how the idea came about.
1: Yeah. So, uh, so you started out with good old fashioned business intelligence, which is uh, actually, I would never have guessed that. And then it basically turned into a security project. And, um, you know, I think it's uh, perhaps, you know, many of the best inventions are ones that uh, you hadn't really anticipated in the first place. So, first of all, welcome to the program. We very much appreciate you being here today and look forward to talking with you in a few minutes here. Um, we also have Matt Kaiser on the program. Matt, you're a regular on the program. Welcome back. Glad to be here. <laughs> and we have Manny Ortiz, You're uh, becoming more and more regular uh, that's so right that's right Thank welcome you. welcome as well Ma- manny and uh, i'm brian rexroad and uh so let's uh john let's go back to you and uh discuss a little bit you know at, i think we were discussing a little bit before the program started you know internet of things or things that are connected to the internet obviously you're in a pretty good position to understand what's connected to the internet and i'm kind of curious what your observations are in terms of uh internet of things and where you think we're going to be going
0: so, the Internet of Things has been around for a long time before people really became aware of it in the past year, mm-hmm. um, before it was called you know industrial control systems. The idea of things being networked is not new it's very old actually. A lot of businesses want it, to have it for the same reason that customers do. The basic idea is you want to be able to manage everything remotely you want to be able to see you know, your, your house remotely, you want to be able to open your garage or close your garage remotely, and the same thing applies to businesses. You want to be able to collect information about your factories remotely, you want to be able to fix things remotely. So everything is moving remote for obvious cost-saving reasons, right? You don't want to send out a tech guy to every location, you don't have to drive home to lock your front door, you should be able to do everything remotely. Mm-hmm. And everybody sees the advantages, it's obvious, right? And we've seen a huge, huge surge in the consumer devices for IoT now. And they're becoming over the counter. You can buy them everywhere. You know, it used to be they're expensive and you have to buy them online. Nowadays, you can go to Home Depot and they have a section on IoT. It's so insanely accessible. I looked at light bulbs recently. You can buy these smart light bulbs for like $10 now. Mm-hmm. That's insanely cheap. So it's becoming a lot more affordable. On the same side, we're seeing because Everybody sees the potential in IoT. Everybody wants to be the platform for IoT. They are all rushing to market. They all want to be first. You don't want to be second or third. You want to be first. You want to be a platform that everybody works against. The flip side of that is that we're seeing a huge amount of security problems pop up all across the board. I mean, IoT right now is like shooting fish in a barrel. Like Any IoT device you look at, you're going to find at least dozens of problems. I remember when I was looking at, just, I was scanning everything in my house. You know, it's the first thing you do when you start looking at IoT. What do I have in my house? And I was uh, scanning my TV, and just scanning it by itself caused it to update its firmware <laughs> and show all the applications running. And I'm like, I, I didn't even do anything, yet. I just scanned it. And it turned out that my Visio Smart TV came with the debug interface enabled. You know, you're supposed to disable all the debug stuff before you ship. Yeah. But they didn't do that. And the same thing applied for the like smart things hub, uh, the GE Wink hub. I mean, all a lot of these IoT devices have so much low hanging fruit. There's so many really trivial security problems in them mm-hmm. that it's it's absolutely miraculous that we haven't seen more, you know, bigger impacts yet. I mean, my guess is that just because it isn't as ubiquitous yet. Not everybody has these smart hubs yet, but I mean, they're everywhere. And one of the big downsides is that they're not easy to update. You know, I remember I recently saw um, a support thread on a smart refrigerator, and somebody was complaining that, oh, my calendar is not working on my refrigerator. And people were like, oh, just reboot your refrigerator. I'm like, what? Is, is this the world we're living in now where, you know, you need to reboot your refrigerator for it to work again? So, I expect that over the next year, we're going to see a lot more of those things, and especially as more people deploy IoT devices, yeah. they'll become a much more attractive target for people to actually attack. Mm-hmm. I mean, right now, how are you actually going to monetize, you know, a few IoT devices? Yeah. But if there are millions of them out there, then it becomes more interesting, and because so many of them are old and insecure by default, it'll be very easy to exploit.
1: Yeah. Well, just a couple of comments on your, uh, you'd mentioned that uh, you scanned your network and it caused your television to update. That's actually encouraging to me. (laughs) I mean, mean, quite frankly, I mean, you know, obviously that's not, that's not the exact desired behavior, but at least it had the capability to to do a software update. Whereas a lot of the devices don't even have that capability. And, uh, you know, I, I, I share your, uh, your observation. I think uh, our saving grace so far to a large extent, has been the fact that a lot of these devices are being deplo- deployed on a local, you know, home network, and uh, you know, in particular, the consumer devices, and so they're relatively protected from the internet, with the exception of some things that you know deliberately expose themselves. And I think it was just last weekend or last week we were discussing, uh, or maybe two weeks ago, that we were discussing on the program how, you know, if the user interface to the browser. Becomes more user friendly on, you know, uh, on uh, web-enabled televisions, then that will expose the browser to any uh, exploits that are associated with that. So, in addition, John, here, you know, from the network perspective, the uh, the security issues that exist on these devices, uh, I think we're going to see some, you know, sort of user end or you know, malicious download type things that that will pop up as well.
2: The thing that's going to be an issue with these IoT devices is that there's always going to be because of the nature of IoT there's always going to be that that notion that you have to be able to get to that o- IoT device yeah. from over the internet yeah. right. there, it's that you know it's that convenience of being able to you know check in at home and make sure mm-hmm. that my lights are off that I closed my garage mm-hmm. that I you know I did all those things so you're, so you know that protection behind your you know being behind your, your local network mm-hmm. is great but there's always going to be that, that, that hole, that little. The motivation little, to be yeah. able to hit it from anywhere. Yeah. Yeah, and yeah. Some,
3: some providers are doing that with a cloud-based service where you log into them, and then your, yours is always sending up to their cloud. Yeah. Yeah. But I think we're going to see, I agree with you, we're going to see the same thing that we've seen with those security camera DVRs, where the, the, the killer app is not to be able to see what's in your cameras from within the mm-hmm. building. It's to be able to check it from home before you go to bed. Yeah. So I, I totally agree. Once the holes are punched, that, that security is really not
1: Yeah. Now, John, one of the first things that you pointed out and, you know, I guess this had kind of slipped by me. I I, I kind of recognized the low cost aspect of this, but I think you were right on the money saying, you know, that the real, you know, a real push here is to be first to market and to be first to market, at least in the current market space, to be first to market with perhaps not such a good product is probably still from a market perspective, still better than uh, actually, you know, trying to work through the kinks and making sure that the security tests have been done and then go into market. And um, you know, in some respects, I mean, if, you, if, you, if you sign up to this sort of the, the agile development approach, that may not be terribly bad, just so long as you have a means to, to do a good job with the update. So, I don't know. Have some, yeah, but one of the big
0: differences with IoT is how often do you replace your refrigerator?
1: Right. that's exactly-
0: <laughs> you know, How often do you actually replace yeah. appliances? How often are you going to replace your garage door? Yeah. Are you going to make sure your garage door is patched? You know, we don't have the same sort of visibility that we do into our regular computing devices. Mm-hmm. That doesn't exist for IoT. That's
1: absolutely and true. And another thing that
0: I don't really hear much about, but I don't know whether customers just don't care, but privacy. You know, with all these IoT devices, they're really chatty, they're really noisy. They they send all this information about you, about your behavior, about everything in your house Mm -hmm. over the Internet to some third party who may be processing it more and more. I mean, there there was a big incident where they had their smart TV constantly listen to everything in the background. The idea was the feature of the TV was that if you say, Samsung, I want to watch a sci-fi movie, It will automatically pick that up and whatever, show you Firefly or Mm -hmm. Avengers or something. But the data that you were transmitting didn't just go to Samsung. It also went to other third parties. So there's the whole privacy aspect as well that is really totally untackled at this moment. Everybody is just very willy-nilly about sending data around, doing whatever they want. But who owns that data? What happens to it once it goes to one of the vendors? Uh, especially as a business, if you start using IoT devices, this is—I mean—a huge liability. Yep. And I would expect that moving forward. I know in Europe they're already trying to create some legislation mm-hmm. around you know, privacy policy for TVs and other IoT devices. But
2: that's
1: a bit of a Pandora's box. I would expect that the—you um, know—if the—if there's an attempt to Put legislation around every sort of scenario—that's going to be a very difficult proposition. You know, I, I think I, I agree with you. I think there are, there are a lot of sort of willy-nilly type things that are taking place. I think there are some industries. I, I like speaking for ourselves. I know we're not willy-nilly about dealing with uh, with with data and privacy information associated with the customers. I think the challenge becomes that as new industries, you know, we've talked about televisions the toy industry getting into these things, and they're making mistakes along the way. I mean, I I personally feel that in many cases there really are mistakes. They're learning uh, activities associated with these organizations, and I think it really needs to mature to the point where, you know, basically the, the industry in general has a better understanding of how to manage data properly, you know, in terms of a security point of view, the privacy, you know, what customers' expectations will be or what they're willing to tolerate perhaps is another way of looking at it. And, um, you know, when free is actually free or if you're really paying some sort of a price that you don't know.
3: Well, I think this is the same sort of discussion that we had or at least we should have had with mobile applications. Mm-hmm. We've got a whole bunch of personal information intentionally placed on the device because it's convenient to have it there. Mm-hmm. Um, but what the, you know, what your the different ad providers are doing on your phone and what other yeah. what permissions you've given those applications to do with that data, it's still kind of a it's fuzzy to most users, I think.
1: Yeah. Well I think it, it, to your point, we have had the discussion many times, not perhaps recently, but certainly this whole notion around free apps aren't free. Mm-hmm. You really should try to understand why why those apps are there, mm-hmm. why they've gone through the trouble to put them on the market. And uh, if they're not charging you money for the app, you're paying somehow.
3: Oh, but, and again, in the IoT space, you've yeah. definitely, I think, you've definitely paid money for the device for the functions that you're expecting, like a Perhaps television. So. It can I be a little more the, misleading, you're right. I, I want to watch television on it. I want to play my video games through it. Yeah. I never thought that it would be recording the things that I say in the room or the TV shows that I watch. Mm-hmm. That was never something that was ever on the box. So mm-hmm. to me, that that's worrying.
1: Yep, absolutely. All right, so uh, anything else you want to share in terms of what you expect to see in the future here, John?
0: No, I think it... Uh normal trajectory for all these industries is as they grow, more compromises will happen. They're going to be definitely more impactful on the personal lives of people just because they're connected to physical things. And if your garage door gets compromised, somebody can open it. So it will be a different sort of experience for people when they get compromised. But otherwise, I just expect to become more interesting as a target over the next year.
1: Right, right. So are, are you willing to share with us any insights into what's to come for Shodan in the next year?
0: Well, Shodan, just more data, more devices. There's always <laughs> something new coming out. And that's pretty much a trajectory, just more, the, more information, faster. All right, <laughs> very good. And uh, actually
1: I actually find that the service very useful. So uh, once again, thank you for joining us. And, and please feel free to continue discussion with us as we go. But we're gonna go over to Manny here and uh, talk a little bit about what you forecast for the next year or so.
2: Yeah, so, uh, so you know, thinking through sort of, you know, what what to forecast for 2016 and I think there's quite a few things and you know we were talking before I think there's a huge list of them so we tried to whittle it down to a couple of things so mm-hmm. the, I think the thing that popped into my mind was the potential for an increase in cloud-based compromises mm-hmm. um, you know as we know that the cl- you know cloud is becoming you know it's it's already a huge buzzword it's only growing you know more and more each day mm-hmm. companies are moving to it more and more these days. Mm-hmm. So obviously, you know, it's gonna become a bigger target. Um, and we know that they're moving there because you know, it's cost-effective, it's yep. easy to deploy there. So there are a lot of reasons why companies are moving to it. We've you know, seen some, uh, some statistics about you know, 87% of enterprises are you know, trusting the move into the cloud. I mean, mm-hmm. that's a huge number. That's a huge number, and that's up from 60% in 2013 and 71% in 2014. So that number is just climbing. So it just, in my mind, makes sense, and I think it's you know it's not a big revelation here, but I think it's you know we're seeing that that move to more and more people being out there. Mm-hmm. Um, so what does that mean? That means that now companies are trusting the cloud with more sensitive data, mm-hmm. and We've got more sensitive data in the cloud, so what does that now become? A richer target, right? Mm-hmm. It's now got juicy data within it. Um, so obviously, you know, when you've got a, now a, an environment that has, you know, more valuable data in it, mm-hmm. it it's going to become a bigger target. And I think yep. you know, I think that's just going to keep moving in that direction. So, mm-hmm. and the problem I think that we're going to see is that. Companies, I think there's a notion today that company it's a it's a false notion that companies believe that moving into the cloud is actually more secure.
1: Mm-hmm.
3: More like secure well, by f- assumption, right?
2: Yeah, yeah, by assu-
1: but yeah, it's, it's not automatic, right? right. It's not right. <laughs> it's exactly. not automatic.
2: And that's and I think that's the problem. You know, yeah. you see companies that go, oh, well, I thought, you know, mm-hmm. I thought by moving in the cloud that, you know, my data was protected by this, you know, that mm-hmm. I. Thought there was, you know, a firewall that was doing all this magical stuff for me mm-hmm. or this, you know. So um, so I think those notions are going to help the fact that there's going to be more, there's going to be more data out there that's sort of unprotected. And, mm-hmm. uh, and I think that's, that's what's going to cause yeah. us to.
1: So just a couple, first of all, a couple of things to sort of reinforce your point. I think one that we sort of almost, we've kind of skirted on here is that I think there's a learning process to moving applications in the cloud. It's not as if you know, they solve all your problems for you. And as we've discussed many times, you know I think uh, Jim Clausing hosts some things in the cloud. You really have to have a good understanding of who's responsible for what yeah. in that cloud environment. Make sure that you understand your responsibilities and are, are paying attention to that. You know I, I think an asp- another aspect of this is that when you start to look at um, intrusion detection or you know, the monitoring that's necessary to see if there is a problem with your cloud environment, it takes some, a little extra effort. It's yeah. not as if you can just go and grab the logs off the log server that you don't have access to because your cloud service provider perhaps isn't doing that. Right. And a third observation is just because there's a cloud service provider doesn't mean that they're making money and investing it properly. <laughs> so, you know, it's a very competitive business and uh, we need to recognize the fact that Some of them, at the very least, are going to be cut in some corners and you really need to make sure that you're going to a a reputable service provider to host those applications. So that's, I think, reinforcement. So now I'm going to make the counter argument. Okay. (laughs) You know, one of the real advantages of cloud infrastructure is that it is a large infrastructure that can be managed in a very efficient way. So you have some ubiquitousness about it, as opposed to you know picking up this server and hoping that one gets administered properly and then getting another server and hoping that one gets administered properly. So there are some opportunities to actually, in my opinion, have a more secure environment. But uh, I, I tend to agree with you that we're still in the learning phase, more sensitive information. And I think to John's point, by the way, Another aspect of this is that one of the promises of cloud is to get product services to market quickly, yeah. and so the question is, are organizations cutting corners on the security of their application because there's no other inhibitor in the path? So yeah. I think that's a uh, perhaps something we need need to consider too. Yeah. So absolutely, it's a good possibility we'll see some more things, and I think um, you know our, our observation in terms of compromised devices or things cloud's in there, we don't talk about it quite as often, but uh, there's certainly a lot, of, uh, a lot of attacks that we've seen associated with, uh, sourced out of cloud environments. Right, yeah. Yep. Yeah, actually, um, yep.
0: there are a lot of problems that are unique to the cloud environment that I don't see on people that have co-location or manage their own servers. For example, a lot of MongoDB, a lot of these NoSQL products, a lot of these things that are advertised as scaling horizontally on the cloud are deployed in an um, insecure way you know they have one image that's poorly configured and then you're spreading that one image across the entire cloud. so there are lots of instances where people put their entire database, their entire infrastructure on the cloud
2: mm-hmm.
0: to the public without knowing that. Uh, I agree that they believe there's some firewall some managing that's going on by the cloud. That they might be doing that for you, but they're not. You I know, mean, if you're managing your own servers, you have a system administrator, you have somebody who is a go-to person, and if anything goes wrong, you know you can talk to a guy. But with the cloud, it's a bit more amorphous. You know, developers deploy things, and so yeah, I agree that the cloud is a unique environment.
1: You know, John, I think you picked up on another, uh, perhaps an important dynamic that is perhaps I, this is the first I've heard of it, but I think you're probably exactly right on par. That is, that team dynamic between the traditional system, server, administrator, and the application developer changes entirely when you move into a cloud environment, and suddenly the system administrator might be completely missing. Yeah. And, uh, and so now the application owner has to have much more cognizance of what it means to implement that system in a secure way. And and John, I think uh, I agree with you as well. You point out that uh, sometimes applications are put out there, whereas uh, take an administrative interface in an enterprise environment, that part would tend to be segmented off internal to the enterprise and just the services that you want out on the internet to be f- to be opened up at the firewall. You put it in a cloud environment, there's no firewall there. They might think there is one, but th- there's no firewall there. And next thing you know, the system administration interfaces and all kinds of other services that may not have been locked down are, uh, are also exposed to the internet. So, very good observations.
3: You know, I've been sitting here listening to you guys and I'm trying to come up with a metaphor for how cloud and traditional IT are a little bit different and all I can think of is, you know, when you talk about putting firewalls around things, I keep thinking of a castle with a night standing guard, whereas some of these cloud services are basically a motel where the guy throws the keys and says, I don't care what you do in there, I'm going <laughs> to clean up when you're done. That's it. <laughs>
1: yeah. And, and, you know, by the way, that's one of the, I think, important attributes to look for in a cloud service provider is one that actually has a good abuse management Absolutely. solution in place and I've seen ones that have been quite good I've seen ones that have been not so good but um, you know in many cases they have it very highly automated that if there is a problem and complaints come in or if there's an issue discovered that there's a process for managing that and getting it taken care of So yep,
3: there's a right uh, way to do it
1: yeah there's a right way to do it all right <laughs> <Did you laughs> no.
2: I was just to say maybe you should have a maybe you should had have, a, have a, a knight as your symbol. And that would help you in, in selling you know, your your service, your cloud service being a little more secure using your analogy there you of, go. A, of a castle. So I don't know, maybe it'll work. <laughs> All
1: right. <laughs> All right, so I'm going to give my forecast prediction for 2016. And, you know, okay, I'm a little like Charlie Brown here. I, conf- I get confused with, you know, the uh, wishful thinking and, and reality. But nevertheless, you know, I I'd like to see, I hope to see, a renewed emphasis on prevention technologies and security as opposed to relying and I'm I'm going to emphasize relying on detection. So there's been an awful lot of basically emphasis on, you know, gather threat intelligence and share that information and, you know, use that as a means to detect attacks against you and subvert those attacks and remediate the attacks and, you know, at best, well, Perhaps at best, if you can use that threat intelligence to actually block things from actually getting in, that's one thing. And I don't mean to, uh, uh, by the way, belittle the value of threat intelligence. I know, Matt, you've been working on it. I keep looking at you because you've been working on it a lot <laughs> lately. But the, uh, I, I think there's still a lot of value in it. But I think it is more about who the attackers are, how they might attack you, what systems they might be targeting, how they might go about it, targeting it but the tendency to think that you can collect an IP address or domain names that are indicators of attack I think is really a losing proposition and to be dependent on that. Mm -hmm. It may be helpful for finding things, but I think uh, we've observed that the more sophisticated attacker groups are already subverting those technologies. They have automatic domain name generation. They're using a lot of diversity in their infrastructure to be able to uh, to not use the same IP addresses over and over again. So I think what we really need to do is renew our emphasis on prevention, that is putting the right protections in place, just as we were talking about with cloud, making sure systems are locked down properly and not getting too reliant on detection and remediation as our security strategy and things. So I don't know if it's a good forecast, but it's certainly my hope that the industry in general will will, uh, will begin to emphasize that a little bit more. There- so I know you're waiting <laughs> to say something here, Matt.
3: No, I, I tend to agree with you. I really I realize there's definitely value in it uh, in collecting threat intelligence, but yeah. a lot of the time, what you're going to catch is things that have already happened. Things that and have already at, happened. At that point, it's already too late. And you know, I'd love to be yeah. able to say that we would take a look at you know grab threat intelligence and throw it into a blocking system right off the bat but it doesn't work that way. Yeah. When you get this information, you have to do some due diligence. If you're going to do that, you have to vet it mm-hmm. because the, the, the chance of false positives you could really shoot yourself in the foot Mm -hmm. and if you start going down that road then you start having to worry about categorizing the entire internet and even with that Mm -hmm. you're going to be cutting it very thin and you know if if this website was categorized news and it's okay today but tomorrow their their ad provider gets hacked or something silly like that happens Mm -hmm. you'll never be a hundred percent you're always going to be dealing with a model and not ground truth
1: yeah you know uh, uh, something you kind of uh, hit the fringes of you know to have stale threat intelligence information and if you have the ability to go back in time and see what happened then, then there is a possibility that you can use that to derive new current threat intelligence information. That's true, it can be
3: helpful, but again, you've got to dedicate the resources and pick and choose what you're able to look at.
1: Yeah, it's very difficult to do, and um, I I, 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 I guess, again, with my sort of my forecast here, I think it's easier just to protect the system in the first place. <laughs>
2: yeah, I was just thinking the same thing. You know, prevention is much harder to do than to just you know set up you know existing protections. Yeah. So you know, prevention means you have to, like you said, start ahead. Yeah, fore- yeah, forecasting. Yeah. you have to start forecasting. That takes a little bit more thinking to do to start doing the prevention side of it. So.
1: So with that, let's go to you, Matt. What's your
3: Forecast for next year. So my forecast for this for next year is really, and I'll be honest, it's an extrapolation of what I saw this year, and and that's the best kind of forecast. You're just not making it up. A See, I, I'm so you wishful a thinker. Line. I'm a wishful thinker. You're using data for your. It's it's <laughs> not data. I wouldn't call it that. I'd call it reading a whole bunch of articles and coming up with a fuzzy feeling. But right. I've seen in the last few years, just looking at the number of new point of sale malware families that are coming out and the continued development of the other ones, I think point of sale is coming it's going to, it's gonna be a big deal next year. I know that we're, we're feeling a little bit warm and fuzzy about the new chip and signature. And I will mm-hmm. say chip and signature and not chip and pin because it's an important distinction that we don't have pin in the United States. But I think that it's, it's where the money is. And if mm-hmm. you know we've, we've got things like Zeus you know, attacking people doing their online banking on their own machine, but I think that there's a bigger, not a bigger, but a juicier target surface On point-of-sale systems in particular small and medium-sized businesses. People who don't have a dedicated IT staff to perform that kind of you know due diligence and say is this configured the right way Mm -hmm. and a lot of POS is being done by shops that'll do it for several different you know restaurants or stores and they'll set them all up and they'll leave RDP open so they can go Mm -hmm. back in and make the changes that need to be made because it's convenient for them but it doesn't mean that the system is secure and in fact it can leave open holes so if you've popped the RDP password for one of this customer's, um, one of their customers, you've got 20 other ones most likely if they're doing it. It's a possibility. So, Certainly a possibility. And I, it worries me. I know that as a, you know, as a consumer, I'll go to places, I'll use my credit card, and I'll take a look at their POS, and I'll think, you know, I bet that thing is running Windows XP, and it hasn't been patched in a year, <laughs> yeah, but I'm still going to pay for dinner at this restaurant. Mm-hmm. So to me, I think it hits a little bit home. So mm-hmm. that's, that's where I'm feeling today.
1: Okay. Well, I, your, your personal conviction on this one is, I think, an important aspect of it that you're, you're in the game here. <laughs> so, so I, you know, I think uh, I, I agree with you. You know, we've seen cases where smaller businesses aren't as well prepared to be able to protect things. They may outsource these activities and even the organizations that they're outsourcing toward, they're probably uh, the lower cost ones, maybe locally. Or in and perhaps aren't as uh, well acclimated with the requirements and, and protecting things well. Maybe not have a vested interest in uh, actually doing a, a good job. They're trying to have more clients, perhaps more than they are trying to uh, protect the clients uh, appropriately. So yeah. so I have a couple open ones here because I think we'd re- be remiss if we didn't cover these topics in terms of forecasts. So denial of service attacks have been growing. Uh, there's been a growth in, you know, extortion attempts using denial of service attacks. We see a lot of situations where uh, video gaming activity is uh, just really a motivator to try to knock out your opponent in video gaming. So if you can knock out your opponent for a period of time, you know, denial of service attack services have become so easy to procure. Spend a few bucks, get, you know, minutes or hours worth of uh, attack capability. What do you, are are we, has it peaked out? Do you think it's uh, gonna go up or down? John, let me. Uh, I'll, I'm going to toss this one to you first, and see if you have any thoughts on the matter. Have you been tracking this topic? Uh, sure.
0: Well, <laughs> I'd be surprised if it went down. I wouldn't see a reason for it to go down. Yeah. The tooling has only gotten better. Now, for example, I was surprised that only you know this year and last year we've seen a lot more coverage of the NTP reflection attacks. Mm-hmm. I mean, that attack is ancient, right? It's been around, known for. Um, I remember H.D. Moore discussed like five or six years ago. Mm-hmm. I mean, this is not a new attack in the security world. Yeah. But the tooling around these things has improved mm-hmm. to the point where it's much more accessible. You mentioned video games. You know, anybody who's non-technical now can just pick up a tool and run it and they're good to go. Mm-hmm. So I don't expect it to go down. I'll be shocked if it went down. I would only expect it to go up. Yeah. Especially now, it's it's gotten cheaper to rent, you know, gigabit connections and everything else. I mean, infrastructure has gotten cheap. Mm-hmm. So all these things combined, usability, bandwidth getting cheaper, access, even like in you know, residential access to fast speeds has gotten better. Mm-hmm. So I'd expect it to go up. Yep. I think you
1: I think you've hit the nail on the head. There's more bandwidth coming available, and so users are gonna the attackers gonna have that to their benefit. There's still additional attack vectors that are being discovered. NTP is an old one. You know, DNS has been a reflective attack vector. Uh, you talked about it a little bit earlier, John, you know, the uh, proliferation of uh, IoT devices and the potential for those devices to be compromised and used in these attacks. In fact, you know, just as a sort of a side comment, there was a, what at least was described as a substantial attack against the root DNS servers mm-hmm over the last week or so. I guess it was uh, on November 29th, I guess it was two weeks ago. So it was November 29th and December 1st. And uh, there was some speculation more recently that it actually might be mobile devices that are causing it. I, I haven't seen any evidence to support that. But what I have seen is that there has been a huge amount of effort to recruit home router devices into botnets. over So we'll, we'll talk about that a little bit in our uh, internet weather report as we get forward, go forward here. But um, I think there's a good possibility that the IoT devices, these consumer devices, are a large uh, participant in, or and culprit in this. And, you know, these devices, they don't have any virus on them, so antivirus companies really don't have visibility into those devices and what they're doing. Uh, they're on all the time. They're easy to compromise because they don't have good security measures around it. They really have a lot of the attributes that the attackers look for. And, and every time that we've seen... Devices like this that have been compromised, they have a DDoS attack tools associated with them. So, I agree with you, John. I think um, I think we expect to see some more denial of service attack activities, perhaps growing, perhaps some new vectors, but um, not uh, not relaxing at any any
3: time near future. Two thoughts on this. Um, I, I was listening, and you were talking about you know the IoT devices and how they've got all these open ports and things that really shouldn't be. Is the DDoS problem really an an overall internet hygiene problem? I realize that there's a lot of, you know, some of the platforms that are doing these attacks Mm -hmm. are things like established botnets with, you know, malware running on Windows XP and Mm -hmm. someone installed something and now they're stuck. and That's that's one side of his hygiene problem, but having just services running out there that have no purpose, you know, things like DNS running on a home router but on the outside and who would ever query that, but it's definitely something you could use for a reflection attack. I mean, it feels like the way to fix this problem would be an organized community effort to try and get these things off the internet in the first place. Yeah, and
1: there are efforts to try to do that, Mm -hmm. but the the challenge becomes... So, to your point, I like to make the distinction between the network being the problem and the things connected to the network being the problem. Mm -hmm. And I think it's mostly, mostly uh, things connected to the network being a problem. And I'll explain the exception to that in a moment here. But... Uh, these, there are no real security standards for things to be connected to the network. There was a very encouraging, a couple of uh, encouraging statements earlier in the year. I think uh, Underwriters Laboratories made a, basically an announcement that they were going to put together basically a uh, device security hygiene, you know, <laughs> you know, some device security standards so that they could get a UL rating just in the same line that we, you know, think about. And, you know, it's interesting that I, I'm going off on a wild tangent here, but I, I found it interesting. I didn't know where Underwriters laboratories came from. It actually came from when they started putting electricity in homes. Mm-hmm. Manufacturers were making these electric devices that you plug into the wall and they would burn the house down. <laughs> and so the insurance underwriters needed to create a method to make sure that devices that were sold and put into homes were safe enough that it wasn't going to become an insurance liability and I think we're right on the edge you know more cyber insurance is becoming more popular I think we're on the edge that the uh, that whole notion kind of can extend into the internet now so uh, you know it really does have some potential consequences in terms of you know credit card fraud tax fraud and things like that that uh, the f- makes it worthwhile for organizations to be involved in making sure things are safer. So I'm hoping that that's gonna get a little more traction.
3: So I said two things, and now we're going <laughs> long on it, but the second thing is I'm, I'm, I'm particularly concerned about DDoS groups that do um, extortion. And, yeah. even, and there's, yeah. there's names like DD4BC and Armada, and they, they're out there, people starting to recognize and worry about, you know, am I going to be a target of these folks? Are they going to keep, keep hitting me until I pay? What worries me the most is that these groups are setting a precedent where if you receive an email saying, I'm going to DDoS your site, mm-hmm. um, you've heard about me in the news and linked to any one of many articles about DDoS attacks, mm-hmm. send me this money or you will be you know, put down, people might just start paying without even having a show of force, which some of these groups have done to say, you know, yeah. we have the capability of sending this traffic at you, therefore you should pay us. But I think if, if this building hysteria about these sorts of groups it's bigger, more and more mm-hmm. copycats will just show up and demand money.
1: Yeah, I agree. So what my advice is don't pay ransoms. Absolutely. Yeah. It's, a, it's that simple. There are good protection services for, for denial of service attacks. That's going to be a better way to spend your money if you're going to do that. Mm-hmm. So. The other aspect, the network hygiene aspect, one of the problems in order to conduct a reflective denial of service attack, you have to be able to spoof source addresses. And that is an aspect that uh, there are still networks and now one of the problems is most of the networks at least that I'm aware of that aren't providing spoof protection aren't in the United States. Uh, but the U.S. networks, by matter of necessity, it is one internet, uh, are connected to those. and so. It becomes a, a bit, a, not just a bit of a challenge, it becomes a challenge to be able to distinguish spoof source from not spoof source and have the mechanisms in place to be able to protect against that. So, that is still an aspect of, in terms of the global network, being able to provide the network level hygiene and be able to protect against those. It's certainly something we pay attention to.
0: Just quickly on the ISP level sizing, it's not just that the, you know, you mentioned why would a modem or router expose DNS publicly? and it turns out that there are ISPs around the world that do that on purpose because it's part of their infrastructure. Yeah. It's, it, there's really weird things that I didn't realize people ISPs did until I started scanning internet for it. But there are all these idiosyncrasies that ISPs around the world use for their own benefit. And they were never, you know, nobody ever noticed it until it became much easier to find these devices on the internet. And Shutting them down or securing them is really, really hard because they depend on it for their business. Mm-hmm. You know, like all these duplicate SSH keys, external DNS, external all these other things. Uh, I know some ISPs in India are running external BitTorrent. Like it, it's part of their feature. Mm-hmm. Uh, they advertise to their customers we were going to, you know, faster seeding. So, so they run their own BitTorrent network there. There are all these weird things going on around the world that if you're aware of them as an attacker, you can just leverage that. It's just free resources. Mm -hmm. And shutting it down is really, really hard.
1: Yep, good point. So there are a lot of uh, countries that are still developing their networks and perhaps haven't learned the lessons that uh, are necessary to to actually, you know, be able to protect those networks. And it
0: doesn't impact them enough to spend a lot of money (laughs) on security and totally revamping their entire thing. It's too expensive Mm -hmm. and, you know, It just doesn't make financial sense for them to really make the change needed.
1: Mm -hmm. So the last topic I thought we'd bring up for discussion here is the notion of destructive malware. We sort of emphasized this last year. And, um, you know, I guess it comes in two flavors that I see. There's ransomware, which is, uh, you know, basically, for the most part, it's been targeting individuals. You know, sort of spam campaigns, see who gets infected, and then as their files get encrypted eventually you get a banner and then ask for a ransom and then there's the more what i would describe as more of a business concern would be what i would describe as mass destructive malware which uh, they're not completely separated so Manny what what are your thoughts about this
2: so i mean i, I completely agree cuz uh, i i think what do you a lot, agree of, with? A, lot of, <laughs> a lot of the a lot of uh, the, you know since i've been on the on the show a lot more Frequently, uh, recently, um, a lot of the stories that I've actually covered have been in the realm of ransomware. So mm-hmm. I know for a fact that that's becoming a bigger and bigger trend. Yeah. Um, and uh, like you, I expect that to grow more. and And I think, like you were saying, the r- ransomware is is at this point at a place where they're they're attacking the the individuals. Mm-hmm. But we can certainly see that in the future. That ransomware becoming more of a company, you know, a company gets targeted. So, hey, look, you know, it's not, hey, Matt, I've got your data, pay me my $300 and you can have your data back. It's, hey, you know, company X, you know, Mm -hmm. I've got, you know, 20,000 of your machines I've got now under Mm -hmm. ransom, you know, I'm going to need, Right. X amount of dollars for, you, for me to release all this stuff for you. Yeah. So you know I, I see that as sort of the next level of where this is going to get to, um, and that's going to be a, a huge problem.
1: Right Well it certainly is in a business's interest to be prepared for that. My, yeah. my hope is that it does not come about that way, but the, uh, it, we, we need to be expecting that sort of thing that is that those that uh, anticipate the problem are going to find that they have less of a problem. What do you think?
3: Well, I I tend to agree that ransomware in terms of, uh, you know, attacking, this sort of opportunistic Mm -hmm. destructive attacks are going to grow. I think there's, we've shown that there's, attacks have shown that there's a market for that. I've recently heard that there's Mm -hmm. more attacks going towards Android uh, for ransomware. Um, I'm not so sure about the, the targeted destructive attacks against companies, things like Saudi Aramco, Sony, etc. Mm-hmm. I'm not sure how to predict where that's going to go. I think those are all still special cases.
1: They are. It, it, the existing cases have been very special. You're right. Yeah. Special circumstances. John, do you have any thoughts on this?
0: I don't know whether, I mean, targeting businesses would make sense if they really want to kick it up a notch, but mm-hmm. I don't know whether they're just going to keep sticking to the low-hanging fruit. Because it seems like it's much easier to do that, that you know, compromising NAS devices and small businesses. Like you mentioned earlier, they don't have IT people. They don't have definitely no security person. Mm-hmm. So I, I don't know how they're going to make that decision whether they want to go for the easy targets or whether they want to go for the really you know high risk high reward. Because mm-hmm. I have a feeling that maybe they're afraid to go after the big businesses because that'll definitely. Put them on another level in terms of you know profile and exposure and I mean law enforcement is going to crack down definitely much harder if uh, they talk if they focus one business versus if they just go after you know a few thousand mom and pop shops or you know individuals.
1: Yeah, good up. Um, yeah, right well, you're right. Good observations there. That's uh, that's likely to be the case. You know, I, I guess. Um, you know, one other aspect, I, I don't necessarily blame this on necessarily mal- malware technology, although I think the malware has gotten better. I think the real transition that's taken place is having virtual anonymous currency. Yeah, you know, I was thinking about nah. that. And it's the ability to, and, and this is true with the extortion DDoS attacks as well, that is if you, can, if you can compel somebody to pay something anonymously. And, you know, the one thing that the big companies have is a bureaucracy, it does not how to use virtual currency, Yes. <laughs> so, I, I don't know if that's a protecting uh, factor here or not, but it's certainly uh, something to sort of <laughs>
3: well, the, consider. I mean, Bitcoin gets a lot of the, the flack for that, but before that, we had things like uh, Liberty Reserve, yeah. Web Gold, or something like that. There's there were a couple of predecessors to it. Yeah. I think that Bitcoin is the one that sort of started to make waves outside of that right. community, and so. There was an interesting NPR story, um, I'm trying to remember, it was it was about ransomware, and the, mm-hmm. the biggest problem that the, the person who was infected with it had, was figuring out what the heck Bitcoin was, where she should get some, mm-hmm. and how she should send it. Mm-hmm. So, <laughs> that's, you know, right. that's, that's an interesting question.
1: But that, that, that has been sort of an inflection here, is that more organizations or more individuals are at least aware of Bitcoin, and have, uh, have been learning more about it. And because of that, it makes it, lever that the uh, the attackers can use so Mm -hmm. I guess um, anyway don't pay the ransom be prepared for it you're better off that way let's take a look at the uh, the internet weather for the last week or so here and uh, starting with the top 10 most probed ports port 23 at the top of the list no surprise there followed by 53413 UDP now this is that back door associated with NETUS routers we're gonna dig into that a little bit further as we go forward here followed by port 80 TCP, looking for web servers, 22 TCP. We had seen actually some targeting routers on 22 TCP in, in uh, some cases as well. 443 TCP, obviously, looking for uh, vulnerable web servers as well. Followed by 445, Conficker just isn't going away. A new port that showed up on the list here and actually has jumped up significantly. I don't even have how many places it moved up in ranking. Uh, because we had a little trouble calculating it. But nevertheless, it's a 1911 TCP. Quite frankly, I don't know what that is yet. And, uh, and actually, it turned out in this case, the activity was associated with a known research organization. So I'm going to put that in the category of innocuous for the time being, but there was certainly some probing activity there. And, and then uh, port 53 UDP. This is actually associated with, uh, I think, predominantly reflective denial of service attacks. We'll take a look at that in uh, at a few slides here. And then uh, last but not least here, port 21 TCP. And uh, we're actually seeing some activity that looks like a slow growing worm on, on that port. So uh, we'll take a look at that. Looking at the most sources doing the probing, I guess actually port 23 jumped up again here in terms of the most sources doing the probing. We're gonna take a look at that. We already talked about 53413. We're gonna dig into that a little bit more as well. We have a couple of spikes to show you associated with the 53 UDP. So first of all, looking at the scan probes on port 23 TCP, this is over the last 90 days here. You can see actually the probes have gone down uh, we're still uh, sort of in a decline relative to uh, our peak that was, uh, I'm looking at the graph here, you say the third week in November, we were pretty close to the uh, the peak for that, uh, that 90-day period there. So uh, it's good to see that going down, but I don't think that's a trend that we're going to see uh, continuing in that direction. And then in terms of the scan sources, that is the number of sources that are doing that probing, uh, we did see a peak in the, net in the last week or so here. I think it was uh, just around uh, December 10th or so, and it has been dropping off ever since then. So what that kind of tells me is that it's sort of uh, slower devices that are doing the probing. There's a number of probes are going down, even though we had a surge in the number of sources doing that. Uh, perhaps they're busy doing some other activity, which is uh, slowing down their behavior. So um, anyway. Uh, and looking at scan probes on port 50. Oh, by the way, I should mention a lot of those you know, I, We've mentioned it so many times in the past on port 23 Generally, they're doing password guessing attacks And many times just really doing some mundane password guessing looking for default passwords associated with devices that they're targeting On 53 4, UDP I think this is the third week in a row that we've been uh, covering this topic. We're looking at the last 30 days of data here. This is that Netis router backdoor. There is a uh, report from Trend Micro on this topic. Uh, I think it's about a year old. I think it was done in uh, in August 2014. Now, we reported a big surge in probes that occurred, I guess it was in the uh, last week of November, and it was a big surge. Is is, we're looking, we're just talking in terms of hundreds of millions of probes in a given hour, uh, that has relaxed significantly since then. But when we look at the number of sources that are doing that probing, that has not relaxed so much. So uh, what this tells me is perhaps the devices that are doing that probing, perhaps they've been slowed down deliberately, or perhaps they're busy doing some other things that slowed them down as well. But uh, what we're seeing is on the order of about 40 to 50,000 sources that are doing that probing activity at any one time in the last uh, week or so. It's still a significant number of source addresses that are doing that probing, a pretty sizable botnet. And that isn't necessarily even the whole botnet. There could be you know, other participants that are uh, not dedicated to, uh, to doing that. I'll- When we look at a geographic distribution of this activity, this is actually last week's distribution. It's based on a sampling of just uh, only about 500 sources, but uh, being that the Netis routers are more popular in Asia than they are in the United States, we also see uh, sort of a concentration in the Middle East there. And uh, I generally see a pretty heavy concentration in India, but in this particular map, it's not really showing that. The distribution is a little different than we typically see for uh, you know, basically botnet activity like this, since so, so we uh, certainly have a lot of devices in the United States. Now, uh, again, sort of just repeating if you're not, haven't already heard about this, those packets that are sent out on port 53413 are actually, they actually contain a script, and uh, we've done a little bit of a translation here, We're basically extracted it from a sample packet, and it shows basically what the, uh, what it's doing is telling the device to go and download some additional scripts that ultimately those actually download some more scripts and then uh, basically uh, execute those and uh, run those on the device. So if the packet is successful, uh, the device uh, executes those activities, it will become infected. And uh, I suspect, or most likely uh, the situation is if the device gets reset, a power reset or something like that, it's gonna clear out that problem and then uh, open it up to be susceptible to attack once again. Now, looking at the scan sources, uh, and this is a number of source addresses that are probing on port 53 UDP, there's sort of a certain amount of activity that we see all the time, and this is only in thousands of sources. So we typically see on the order of maybe 500 sources that are scanning at any given time. But we've seen some spikes. You can see mostly to the right there are some spikes in the activity. That's actually activity associated with reflective denial of service attacks. And I was able to uh, confirm this through some other analysis that uh, there were, in fact, uh, denial of service attacks associated with this activity. And then looking at the scan sources on port 21 TCP, this is a FTP file transfer protocol. Looking at the last 30 days, uh, we see a real telltale sign of what appears to be a worm that's growing. Most likely, there's uh, they, they may be doing something to uh, find uh, permission flaws or something in these FTP servers. We're still investigating that activity, but over the last uh, week or so, basically what we're seeing is an increase in the number of sources and then continuing to increase of um, probing on port uh, 21TCP, which really suggests that uh, more devices are being uh, recruited into that activity. Perhaps cloud devices, Manny. Looking at the geographic distribution of that activity, uh, we see heavy concentrations in India. I think that's sort of the biggest heavy concentration devices in Russia and the Middle East. Almost none in the United States, none in South America that we identified so far, uh, none in Australia. So this is a really biased Distribution, perhaps language-oriented, or something associated with what's uh, with the targeting. It could have have to do with perhaps the address distribution or how it's doing that scanning. But uh, again, a very unusual distribution, from at least from my experience. And then, last but not least, here um, last week we reported a big surge in the number of sources that were scanning on port 2332 TCP. Uh, we're still sort of investigating their true cause behind this. Uh, we did see a lot of IoT devices associated with this, but we weren't really sure about why, you know, why port 2332. Uh, nevertheless, we have not seen a resurgence in the activity. It surged up to about 37,000 sources that were doing that probing, and then it's basically done that uh, sort of that standard decay. There's still on the order of about 200 or so sources that we. Uh, are observing doing this scanning activity. And again, you can see the distribution here. I, have you have you seen the trend? There's an awful lot of stuff in the Middle East <laughs> lately. It's been a, a concentration, and then we see some in China. So uh, we did sort of identify that this may also be associated with those Netis routers, uh, but it's not clear uh, you know, There's a possibility that those devices are getting compromised. There's even a possibility that this is a sort of a P2P activity, but uh, it didn't seem like those TCP connections were really connecting. So um, it, uh, you know, we still need to investigate that a little bit further. So in any case, uh, that's our show for today. We'd like to thank you for joining us. And if you'd like to get in touch with us, you can email us at attthreattrack at list.att.com. You can find at Threat Track on the ATT Tech Channel on YouTube as well as on iTunes. And you can follow us on Twitter. Our handle is at attsecurity. And uh, John, do you have a Twitter handle?
0: Yes, you can find me on Twitter at Achillean, Achilleam, A C H I L L E A M, and just briefly, I looked up because Shodan also scans for Tor for the 2332, and I have it marked as being used by Sierra Wireless, so telecommunications equipment, I think. Okay. So Sierra Wireless running right. Telnet on 2332.
1: Yeah, okay. so that's a it's a good possibility that that's attributable a to this or what they're targeting, and like I said. We're seeing a lot of probing activity, but not a lot of connections, so there may be a relationship that, uh, between those two. Thank you for bringing that up. John, I'd like to thank you especially for joining the program today. It's been a pleasure having you, and uh, my only regret is that we weren't able to uh, meet in person here, but um, I'll take online better than, better than not. Thank you, Manny Ortiz. Pleasure. Matt Kaiser. Anytime. I'm Brian Rexrode. We'll be back next week with a new episode, and until then, keep your network safe.
0: Views expressed on at and Threat Track are those of the participants and do not necessarily represent the views of at and or any other person or entity.